welcome to The Meeting Room, a place to gather and discuss all things relating to meat safety, quality, and production. In the news this week, it is expected that the number of hogs being processed will be lower in the beginning of this year versus the same time in 2022. This slump is typical for a seasonal shift, but will likely impact hams and trim. The need for hams will speed up going into the spring in preparation for Easter, but at the end of November following Thanksgiving and going into the Christmas holiday, ham inventory was down about 40% compared to the five-year average. Pennsylvania recently announced grants for small processors in their state. 20 meat and poultry processors around the state received grants ranging from $39,000 to $100,000. In total, the grants totaled over $1.6 million. At the beginning of December, Tyson announced bonuses going to their 90,000 hourly employees in the United States. Bonuses range from $300 to $700 per person and totaled nearly $50 million. Going into the new year, added benefits and services are going to be put in place for various facilities and their current average hourly wage is about $19 an hour, with total value to the employee with addition to benefits and that sort of thing uh, being nearly $50,000, and that does not include overtime. Um, And I included this story for a couple of reasons. One, it just amazes me the number of employees that are coming from one processing company, um, and just the impact that paying those employees has on all of those local economies and all of those things. Um, It just really kind of blows my mind thinking, you know, those number of employees and then just the money that goes into bonuses, how um, just huge those numbers are. And the second thing that stuck out to me with this was uh, that their average hourly wage is about the $19 an hour. And, you know, that's nationwide, so there's going to be places higher and lower and that sort of thing. And I've been in plants that start at about 21 or 22, and that's for people on cleaning shifts or um, who are there throughout the day just kind of picking up and doing those tasks. A lot of them have an additional dollar an hour if you have a knife in your hand, um, and then with the knife in hand, with experience, that number continues to go up. Um, And most of these facilities have a lot of overtime hours. If they run on Saturdays, um, that can have a huge, huge impact on the dollars that are going to those employees. And um, it's just pretty mind-boggling to me to uh, think about the money that's in it all. And especially, you know, in the past few years where hourly wages have gone up kind of in in every industry, even, I mean, fast food restaurants, you go and see $15 an hour. Um, these companies have really had to step up in the pay and the benefits and all that sort of thing um, to really take care of their customers, or excuse me, to take care of their employees uh, to, to keep them coming in. But anyway, uh, welcome to the meeting room. My name is Brianna Boozman, and I want to start off by wishing you a very happy new year. Uh, This week, I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Lancaster, the Director of Product Quality Research for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. In Jessica's previous role, she oversaw a multi-million pound fajita line at a processor and uh, visited with us about that experience back on episode 22. So if you're interested in that, be sure to check out that episode. 
And uh, this week we visited about research happening in the beef world and the tie of academia to industry. And so really thankful that um, she joined us this week. Jessica and I went to grad school together, so always fun to catch up. Um, and with that, I will go ahead and roll the tape. Jessica, thank you for joining me. It is good to have you. Um, I know last time that you were on the podcast, you were doing uh, managing the fajita line, you know, actually kind of working in some processing and you've recently had um, a change in job. So um, I'll maybe just turn it over to you, can maybe give a little bit of background again on yourself and then update us on kind of where you are now and what you're doing. Gabriana, thanks for having me. Excited to be on here again. It's crazy how much has changed since last time I was on here. Um, it was about a year ago today that we were packing moving boxes in Houston to move to Denver, Colorado. I took a job with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association as the director of product quality research and then taking that research and extending the technical knowledge. So I've been in this role just about a year and it's definitely been a whirlwind but love getting to take the science and then figure out how we make that applicable to our producers processors and ultimately our consumers awesome awesome so yeah your job now is very research heavy and focused um and you obviously have an interest in that if not only that was your career path but you went through for the phd um i know you and i in grad school worked on a lot of projects together but I guess, what kind of gave you an interest in research, do you think, um, both kind of in school and as a career path? Yeah, I don't know when the switch fully flipped, but I think trying to solve problems and really provide information is a big passion of mine. And I think the cool part about the meat industry is there's a lot of areas we can do that in. As I finished up my PhD, I didn't fully know where I was headed next. I looked at some academia jobs, ultimately ended up going into the industry um, and being very day-to-day -day management type role and discovered that I missed the education and research and knowledge expansion part. So ultimately came back towards it. In my day-to-day -day role now, I'm not doing the research as much as determining what are the research needs for the beef industry and bringing together collaborators and resources who can help answer those needs. Nice. So when you're talking about collaborators, do you work both with, like, is it just academia? Is it industry? Kind of what is, what do those relationships look like? Yeah, we work a little bit with everyone. Most of the research is done by universities through a request for proposal process. So we'll put out questions or ideas that we want research projects done on they'll submit those and those are reviewed by our advisory. Um, and that's largely people from all across the supply chain in the beef industry. So those real industry experts who know the day-to-day -day happenings and need of the beef industry. So it takes a little bit of everyone's knowledge to help best utilize our resources. Yeah, and that, that to me is cool though of, you know, it isn't just one person saying this is what the needs are, but it's actually pulling people from industry from um, really working with those products to be able to help kind of identify those core needs. Yeah, it's definitely some relationship management, but also sometimes it's introducing researchers who may have never thought they were going to work together and bringing together each of those expertise. 
um, to really get the greatest understanding without having to do 14 different projects. Right, for sure. Can you explain a little bit about what the like kind of grant process looks like for say if a university or a researcher at a university wanted to apply for a project, what does that actually look like? Yeah. Cause so, a lot, I'm going to actually back up really quick for people listening. So in animal science and in a lot of the kind of science fields, grad school for people and projects get funded by groups kind of like NCBA. Um, and those grants, they cover the research project as well as student stipends and things like that. Um, and so a lot of grad schools for in the sciences, um, students actually get paid to almost be like a research tech for those projects compared to things like if you're going to medical school, vet school, those kinds of things, you're paying into that program. And grants are a huge part of that. So anyway, back yeah. to kind of how so, they get there. In terms of NCVA and grants, we're a contractor to the National Beef Checkoff. And so that's a large pool of money that anytime an animal is sold, dollars are collected and it's allocated to different contractors. We're one of many different contractors and really specialize in product quality, beef pre-harvest safety, human nutrition, as well as sustainability. And so as we begin to think about the grant process every five years, the beef industry comes together and develops a long range plan. And that really identifies the needs of the beef industry over those next five years. And that could be anything from policy to producer needs to anything. And out of there, we identify what relates to our specific research area. So maybe it's improving consistency or improving tenderness, anything that could relate to our individual program areas. And from there, we work with our advisory to develop what we call a research roadmap. So those are posted on our website at beefresearch.org, but really shows the areas and considerations we're highly focusing on in that five-year span. So it runs the same length as that um, long-range plan. And so in the product quality area, we kind of have two main buckets. One is applied research. So the beef on dairy cross has been a big area of research we've done and understanding how those carcasses and subsequent products fit in the supply chain. And then we also have more basic research. So a good example there has been plant-based versus ground beef alternatives and understanding the composition of those products and how it ultimately relates to product quality. The third bucket we have on our roadmap is really technical expertise. So taking everything we learn through research, extending that to our supply chain partners, to our consumers, and really elevating that knowledge beyond conducting the research, writing a final report, and it living in a file cabinet forever. Mm -hmm. To make it actually kind of apply. To make it apply. And sometimes it's five or six projects that you have to bring the findings and outcomes together to really have a narrative to tell. Because um, with a single project, maybe you don't have that big storyline that you can really weave together. Right. That makes sense. So typically when they're like applying for grants and stuff, you said you come up with kind of different interests area or kind of research topics. Um, are there any of those kind of right now, what are you seeing, I guess, as maybe hot topics in the beef industry for research? 
in my time here, um, I'll have just wrapped up my second RFP or request for proposal cycle. Our first one was really looking at freezing. So if we think about the beef industry, historically, it's been a fresh industry, and that's how all the products have been managed. We all live through the wonderful pandemic that we're hopefully out of, um, and that really caused the need for some supply chain shifts and a shift to allocating more beef into the frozen sector. So a lot of the projects we funded out of there were looking at best practices for freezing and thawing at a large commercial level to really maintain product quality. And then our most recent RFP was more looking at red meat yield. If it's kind of crazy to me that the red meat yield equation was built quite a while ago and it was around 150 head of Hereford cattle. And at the time they were the height of your belt buckle. And if you've seen cattle today, they've gotten a little bigger than that. And so trying to understand what are better methods to evaluate cattle and the yield they're providing beyond that equation that we know for a while um, has needed some improvements. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. Yield stuff is crazy to me because it, like you said, was such a small sample that it was built on. And now the cattle that are being harvested are so, so different. You know, they're nothing like what that sample even was. So that's an exciting uh, topic to be seeing. Well, and I think it's super valuable to the industry. We just got done with some meetings here in the office and there was some discussion of, can we just get rid of yield made great altogether? We can do way better things on the plant side, but it's important to take into account all of the stakeholders. So as we think of people who are making breeding decisions, we need something to be able to send them back in the system to tell them how those cattle are performing. And for years, that's been quality and yield grade. So understanding as an industry, whatever we go to, we need to be able to have feedback all throughout our system. And it's just a huge um, like payment decision. You know, what is it? Grid pricing is now like 90% of the cattle sold or something. I That number could have just been <laughs> pulled out. But uh it's a, it's a huge number of cattle are sold that way. Um, and so finding a more accurate method or finding something that actually depicts what you're selling, um, it seems super important to me. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We know each of our uh, large processing facilities structures their grids a little bit differently, but at the end of the day, saleable product is still really important. So any way we can accurately and easily made sure that is incredibly important. Um, so then kind of off of that, how do you see some of these research trends, or not even the trends, but like kind of the outcome of the projects being tied and used in the industry? So if it's being done at a university, um, kind of what are some ways that that bridge is connected to make that research usable? Yeah, so we have a really exciting one we're working on right now. For the past decade or so, there's been a large focus on beef flavor. It's incredibly complex. It varies by quality grade, by muscle, by any factor you want to plug into the equation. And so a lot of really um, powerful research has been conducted in that area, and we've published a lot of scientific papers and now a cool project we're working on is really compiling that body of evidence 
and then working on making basically a decision matrix that highlights opportunities that producers, people managing product, and ultimately end users, decisions they can make to positively impact beef flavor. And so I think that'll be a really powerful management tool, uh, kind of similar to what we have for HACCP plans, but more in terms of eating quality. And so sometimes it takes a little bit longer to get to those, um, but hopefully that's something we'll have ready this summer. So are you saying kind of like HACCP plans where it's, so HACCP is the hazard analysis, critical control points, very food safety focused, where plants have those where it's kind of like each step, where can we identify something could go wrong? Is it something like that, but with kind of the flavor of like each step, maybe it's temperature of the room, uh, how long it's been hanging, freezing. That is that kind of what you're thinking? If we think of, like you mentioned in HACCP, it's we have an intervention and that's like our hurdle that we talk about. So on the flavor side, potentially it is aging and the proper aging is really a hurdle to control that. But then also what are areas that we can kind of not have to have as many areas of intervention, but if we miss this step, we've um, not optimized on beef flavor. So kind of identifying what are those key steps because we know if we want the industry and supply chain partners to really be able to emphasize and utilize it, it can't be you have to do 1,000 steps to make it be the perfect flavor. Mm-hmm. That's just not realistic. So identifying what are those big opportunities to optimize beef flavor. And that's so interesting because one of the cool things that I think about meat science is that it literally takes every single step from, I mean, before the calf is born to the time that, I mean, you're going to take a bite of the steak, you can impact the flavor, the quality, the eating experience, all of those things. Um, And so that's really interesting just to be thinking about maybe steps at the plant, but also kind of how far back you can go. And each product is so different. Like that's beef specifically. Some of these projects to me always are so interesting because it is so variable. Whereas I mean, pork genetic lines are similar. They're raised similar. Like it's, it's, and same with poultry. It's a very tight coordinated production, whereas beef's kind (laughs) of all over the board. So I could see that raising a hurdle too with something like that. Yeah. And it's figuring out, we want some variability. I mean, you want, maybe you want to order a six ounce steak and your dad wants to order 12 or 18 ounce steak. So we need steaks that can fit all different needs and niches. But then at some point you do have to rein in that variability or you're never going to be able to have a box of beef that looks uniform. So kind of understanding what are the boundaries and how much variation are we really wanting in the system? Absolutely. Nice. Um, Are there any kind of down the line, like maybe future year kind of projects that you could see coming or areas of interest that you see developing? And you can say no (laughs) if you don't. Can I tell you one that we just wrapped up that's super exciting? Yeah, that'd be great. One of the areas I mentioned on our roadmap was this topic of ground beef versus plant-based alternative type research. And we have some cool storylines that we've discovered from that research. If I think back to when plant-based meats were really creating a big crash on the scene and everybody was worried uh, that people were going to no longer eat beef. So that was a big 
priority for us in the product quality research area. And from a chemical standpoint, really looking at how are these made up? What is the value of these? We discovered that ground beef and plant-based meat are very different. And from a science standpoint, it's so important to have that data because as producers or meat scientists, we can say, no, they're not the same. But until you have the data to empirically back that up, you really can't make that claim. And we really took that a step further. And we had a research project that wrapped up looking at if you put ground beef in a taco or hamburger and also put plant-based meat in those two scenarios, is it the interaction of those other ingredients? Can consumers still tell a difference? With the idea that when we add all those other ingredients, maybe plant-based becomes a little more even playing field as ground beef. But what the research found is there's still a clear divide between ground beef and plant-based alternatives, even when we add the bun and the shell and the lettuce and the mustard and everything you can do. So I think that was a really cool thing that we just wrapped up and we're still working on getting all of those results out, but exciting to see that consumers still prefer beef. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Something that I know when all the plant-based stuff really was a hype that, uh, you know, it kind of worried people, but even that's already kind of seemed to be on its way out. Maybe not. I mean, you still hear about it, but it definitely doesn't seem to be the kind of talking point that it was for a while. I think we'll always see it in the marketplace. I don't know that it'll ever return to the height of what we saw. Uh, we've seen pretty declining market shares over the past months and even years, and we see that in the news headlines as well. But I think to say it's going to fully go away and didn't work out is probably a bit naive of us because we've had plant-based alternatives around for decades. And mm -hmm. there's always a need to give consumers options. And if that's an option they choose, that's great. But we also know ground beef or other beef products is a great option. Absolutely. Good. Um, is there anything that we, we didn't talk about that you would kind of like to visit on? Ooh, so one of the cool things we do is we conduct research. We talked about how we extend that into technical expertise. But if you've ever seen any of the Beef is What's for Dinner campaigns, we also have the opportunity to tie new research into there. And so it's pretty cool to see the length of from when we start our research project to that information could live on for years through the campaigns and really providing consumers up-to-date information and helping them to have the most accurate details when they're making consumer buying decisions. That's cool, where it actually takes kind of research and it's basically extension, <laughs> takes yeah. research and makes it into public information and public knowledge. Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I get a kick out of those beef. It's what's for dinner ads. <laughs> I wish I like the voice. I don't know who does that, but I always get a kick out of it. But thank you, Jessica, for joining us this week. It's awesome to hear, um, I guess, just about how some of those checkoff dollars are being used specifically in research. I know for me that had a, a big part in my grad career of being able to help with some of those projects. And even when I taught at UNL, being able to see some of those uh, come to fruition. So thank you for uh, visiting 
with us um, and appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us this week in the meeting room, and I look forward to visiting with you again soon.